Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. I'm glad you brought up Section 106 and uh, NHPA, the National Historic um, uh, Preservation God, I kept, I kept I had policy in my head. <laughs> Let me start this in the That's why you edit. <laughs> this is the Serum Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 190 for May 20th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about the 2020 changes to the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, with special guest, Dr. Tom King. So pull out your favorite Tom King book because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. The National Environmental Policy Act was signed into law January 1st, 1970, and the Council on Environmental Quality released its regulations for implementing NEPA in 1978. Although some documents have been released with the intent of providing guidance with manner of compliance to NEPA regulations, no comprehensive updates have been proposed until this January when the CEQ published a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking titled Update to the Regulations Implementing the Procedural Provisions of the National Environmental Policy Act. March 10th, 2020 was the deadline to comment on the proposed changes to NEPA, and there was a strong campaign to do so within most environmental disciplines. One would be hard-pressed to find a more vigorously championed campaign than that led by what some might call the godfather of historic preservation, Dr. Thomas King. Today, the CRM Archaeology Podcast has the distinct honor of having as our guest, Dr. Tom King. Dr. King has been a giant in the field of heritage and cultural resource management for over 50 years and has not only been responsible for the education of countless students of CRM through his prolific authorship, but has had a hand in many of the laws and regulations we as CRM practitioners exercise every day. Notably, Dr. King and his wife, Dr. Patricia Parker, while employed by the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation in Washington, D.C. from 1979 to 1989, wrote the National Register Bulletin 38, which has served as a U.S. government guideline document employed by indigenous groups and local communities to protect their cultural heritage from destructive government practices. Dr. King's most recent book, Cultural Resource Management, a Collective Primer for Archaeologists, has an elegant and concise introduction to CRM aimed at emerging archaeologists. Although it could be argued, since we should all be continuous students of all aspects of this discipline, that this book is an essential pocket guide to any level of archaeologist who respects the interdisciplinary and public policy elements of CRM. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Heather in Southern California. Hi, everyone. And it's just Heather and I today for this discussion. And I think the others are going to be sad that they missed it. I hope they're doing something good. Maybe they're getting a, uh, maybe they're getting a haircut or something because states are starting to open up barbershops because that's what's important in this world today. I should I should note that we are recording this because during this time when everything is changing so rapidly, I want people to know when it is when we're recording so they don't think we're out of touch or anything like that. So it is currently May 10th, actually Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Heather, as well. Thank you. Thank <laughs> um, you. Yeah. So it's it's Mother's Day. It's May 10th, 2020. And we have a special guest, as I mentioned in the introduction, Tom King. Welcome to the show. Thank you. 
Glad to be here. All right. So I've been mostly following your interactions on social media uh, regarding the NEPA changes. <laughs> That's what I've been, because uh, you made a lot of comments in various places that we share on particularly Facebook and some of the groups over there. People have brought up things and, and I've followed that discussion a little bit. And then, of course, followed in, in other various resources what's been going on with the uh, changes to the National Environmental Policy Act or the proposed changes. So... Why don't you, I mean, in the introduction, we read, we read a little bit about what NEPA is, but why don't you give us a little primer on really what's, what's brought about these changes? What, why, why are we talking about this right now at this particular time versus five, 10 years ago? Well, NEPA has been around since the late 1960s. It was enacted in 1969, pretty much implemented in 1970, and the regulations were issued by the Council on Environmental Quality in oh, 70, I don't remember exactly when, 76, mm-hmm. something like that, 77. And the regulations have been in place with minor changes ever since. And there have been repeated calls for doing something about them, simplifying them, fixing them up in some way. And every, basic, virtually every administration has come up with some kind of a scheme for fixing NEPA. But most people are pretty satisfied with the way NEPA works. Well, I don't know if I should really say that. I, I don't think anybody is really satisfied with it, but <laughs> nobody has ever quite been able to get anything done about it. Okay, Mr. Trump comes into office and no question where his sympathies are, and he takes this initiative. Let me just back up a little bit, uh, say a little something about how NEPA works. The idea, what what Congress said back in back in 1969, was that each federal agency, when it was planning to do something or approve something or fund something, must take into account the impacts of that something on the environment and do Mm -hmm. a statement of the environmental impacts. Now, the law is not clear about what you're supposed to do with this statement, but logically, you take the statement and you factor what it says into decision-making and say, oh, crap, that's much too damaging and we can't do it, or, gee, this is benign, or, yeah, it's going to have some impacts, but we can fix them somehow. And so the regulations were written to basically facilitate that. I don't think they're very good regulations. I think they're far too complicated. And that all goes back to some of the problems with the act itself. But people have gotten used to it. Certain things are categorically excluded from review under NEPA, but then assuming something, you know, you're building a road, let's say, you're putting in a pipeline, it's not categorically excluded. Typically, an agency will do an environmental assessment to decide whether the thing is likely to have significant impacts. If it is likely to have significant impacts, then they do an environmental impact impact statement and that impact statement theoretically goes with the project plans through the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. All right, it takes time and it costs money. And so project proponents don't like it. And we now have an administration that is very pro-project proponent and they're busily trying to effectively gut the regulations. I think that's an excellent introduction to some of the impetus. Uh, I, I think there's probably some some impetus that is not um, obviously stated uh, in some of these changes, but I definitely think that that is, absolutely communicates to me what the overall reason is for these changes, or at least how they're presented to us <laughs> as the reason for the changes. Mm-hmm. So. I, I know that one of the ways that they're trying to, or, or that the proposed uh, changes have been, are, are aimed at minimizing the cumbersome process that's 
in creating the EIS or the yes and do you think that the, you know the, first it's limiting the amount of time that it takes to create an EIS to two years and then the other is to impose page limits they're saying that that's the main limiting or the main cutting of of the process do you think this glosses over the true reason oh absolutely absolutely and it, and it glosses over the actual changes those are those are minor changes it, right. page limits people have proposed page limits and time limits a million times never works that's that's just smokescreen the the real <laughs> the real things that they're trying to do that are that are important are to basically cut out whole great categories of project and whole great categories of impact and so you don't have to consider them you don't have to consider cumulative impact for example right. which is bizarre because often cumulative impacts are the most severe impacts that need to be considered and they're hard to consider and basically what the rulemaking says is well gee this is really hard to consider so we're not going to do it you don't have to do hmm. it right that's pretty poor governance and indirect impacts are effectively done away with mm -hmm. so you know there there are there are those things those changes are much more serious i think than the proposed page limits and time limits absolutely i think looking over the changes one specific one is that they're they're removing the phrase significance cannot be avoided by terming an action temporary or by breaking it down into small component parts. And so this is not allowing for segmentation under NEPA. And do you believe that this could affect the ability to preserve the cultural heritage resources? And if so, in what ways? I believe absolutely, you know, in, in general, for sure, this is going to affect that. But do you perceive anything right now just off the top of your head some areas where this could have a direct impact. Yeah. Take the Dakota Access Pipeline. Hmm. God, I wish somebody would take the Dakota Access Pipeline. But, <laughs> um, okay, here's this pipeline running mm, 1,000, 1,500 miles across multiple states, across multiple waterways. And the basic regulatory handle on it is the Corps of Engineers, uh, Section 404, responsibilities. They they need to issue a permit for each water crossing. Well, you look at there, I, I don't remember how many water crossings there are, but a hundred and something anyway. And they include some you know, fairly substantial waters like the Missouri River. What the Corps likes to do and typically gets away with doing is busting these things up into little bitty segments and saying, okay, all we're looking at here is our water crossing of this particular waterway and a smidgen on either side. And then we'll jump over and look at the next waterway and the next waterway. So they segment, they take this thing that's got massive impacts along a long right-of-way, segment it into little bitty pieces, and then can say, oh, this one doesn't have any impact, Oop, that one doesn't have any impact, and make it all go away. The regulations have discouraged that in the past, and the courts have discouraged that in the past. They're trying to fix it so that it will be less discouraged. And that's, that's a, I think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. So, Tom, you mentioned fixing NEPA <laughs> and and how people people are always looking at fixing NEPA. But just to be clear, and, and you also did mention Trump and uh, the current administration and how they're, you know, uh, proponent focused. There's, there's obviously been uh, Republicans in part in office before since NEPA was enacted. So have there ever been such sweeping changes promoted, uh, proposed, or is this just a cycle that goes back and forth, back and forth with each administration and their focus and political orientation. I don't know that there's ever been quite as vigorous an attack on the basic NEPA process that, like the, the one we have now. But there have been, well, Obama proposed that there should be significant streamlinings to, to NEPA. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, this is not necessarily uh, only a Republican shtick. So, gotcha. And certainly during the Reagan administration, there were efforts yeah. to uh, constrain the application of NEPA. I would imagine most government regulation could use some bit of streamlining, as long as it doesn't streamline it out of total ineffectiveness, you know, just because of the way things are written. But that being said, do you think that, and we'll get to some of the more of the, the changes here later, but do you think that with the changes that are being made, if a new president comes in this year when we have an election, well, really next year when they when they go into office, and they decide to make some additional changes, maybe bring some things back. Do you think that this is really something that that NEPA can come back from necessarily, or are we are we kind of gutting it to the point of we need to just rewrite the whole thing and start over? Well, I think we'd probably do well to rewrite the thing and start over, anyhow. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're, we're talking about a very vague statute. The statute simply yeah. says you will prepare a statement of environmental impacts. Well, what the hell are you going to do with that? We've developed a sort of practice of what is done with an environmental impact statement, and the courts have weighed in and and approved of some uses of the NEPA process and not approved others. But it's it's sloppy. And while Mm -hmm. I don't think Every time anybody raises the question of streamlining, I get nervous because it's always an effort to gut whatever they're trying to streamline. But there's a lot that could be done to make NEPA not only more efficient, but also more effective and more responsive to the public interest. Right now, it's very easy to do a NEPA analysis that is just sort of pro forma and slap it down on the table and say, there it is, folks, now we're going to proceed, regardless of the public interest. So I think yeah, there, there's a lot that could be done with NEPA, but this certainly is not the way to do it. Now, what the next administration may do, assuming we get a responsible administration, they'll probably just try to put it all back the way it was. And that, I think, is too bad. We're, we're missing an opportunity. This is an opportunity mm-hmm. when we, we, we could actually engage with all the interests and try to improve it. It's going to be too bad if we don't. Yeah, my, my um, understanding just through, you know, reading and knowing NEPA with, con- compared to your vast knowledge in a very limited, for me it's limited compared to your knowledge, uh, Tom. I doubt it. My understanding is that they're trying to go back, they're, they keep saying they're going back to the language of the act itself and that they are justifying their changes based on the original NEPA law. So this they're trying to package as being more of an interpretation of how to implement the law. So do you think with that in mind, it seems like it might be easier, you know, I don't know if this is going to be such a wholesale change that can't be brought back with a different administration. Is that true? Well, sure. I mean, suppose suppose they're successful. And you got to understand, they are, they've proposed this. They've gotten hundreds, maybe thousands of comments. They've had a whole bunch of senators weigh in and say, we don't like this and we're going to hold hearings. They've got people in the House of Representatives who are looking at it and saying, we want to hold hearings. This is by no means a done deal. But let's suppose that they do get it done. Well, they get it done. Well, yeah, let's let's say they get it done before a new and more responsible president comes into office. What probably will then happen is that the new president and the new CEQ will say, okay, we're going to put it back the way it was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, I think that's unfortunate, but it's probably what they'll do. The notion that this is just implementing the law is really silly because the law doesn't say anything. The law only says do a statement. Well, okay, that doesn't give you much guidance. And CEQ tried to put together regulations that provided real guidance. And they've worked fairly well. 
for all these years. But you can't just go back to the language of the statute and say, you know, <laughs> just just do it. It's like with Section 106. It says you'll take into account the effects of your actions on historic properties. Well, what does that mean? It took the advisory council to lay out in regulation what that meant before people could actually do it. And it's the same way with NEPA. Hmm. Okay. Well, that is a good introduction into this topic and a good place to take our first break. We'll be back in just a second and return with Tom King and this discussion about NEPA. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code CRMARC. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out An Introduction to Paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Welcome back to episode 190 of the CRM Arc Podcast. And joined us last segment, but didn't get a chance to make a comment was Bill White. Bill, how's it going? Pretty good. All right. So good you could good you could join us for the last two segments here. So, you know, I want to make a comment to something you were mentioning just at the end of the last segment, Tom, talking about effects of impacts and and what does that mean? And, you know, it takes you took the advisory council to kind of define that. But it still kind of comes down to especially when we're talking about cultural, uh, cultural aspects of the environmental impact statement. It really does kind of come down to how people feel and interact with the, the particular cultural landscape that we're talking about. Um, our last episode, we had a hypothetical scenario. You know, let's say the, the world is destroyed or impacted or people are destroyed in, in one way or another. What does CRM look like in the rebuilding apocalypse? <laughs> what does cultural resources management look like? <laughs> and things that I was trying to say is regardless of laws and regulations, I mean, we've only had laws like this you know, in this century, realistically, and then other countries throughout time may have had certain, um, I don't know, certain reverence for their historical structures. The evidence of that is we have thousand year old plus buildings. We have 2000 year old buildings. We have 5,000 year old structures. Look at the pyramids. You know, we have those things at some point in time, at many points in time, somebody said, you know what? We probably shouldn't destroy that. We probably should hang on to it, whether there was a law or not to specifically state that. So a lot of times it comes down to passion and personal passion towards things. So when you're trying to explain to the Army Corps, who's, you know, who's, who's director of some project might be in some office three states away or, you know, something like that. Uh, or some senator, even when you're talking on the floor of the, you know, of, of the Senate, you're trying to say, hey, I, you know, this thing over here, we need to protect this. I, it's, it's really difficult. It's really difficult to say the effects of this are huge for this possibly small amount of people or people that really care about it. And it's up to those people to explain how the effects of this impact, the impact of this action really kind of impact us all from a historical standpoint. And that I think is one of our challenges as archaeologists and the challenges of historians is to explain, you know, hey, this has an impact because it impacts all of us from a historical standpoint. I don't know. I just had to, it made me think about that when you were discussing that at the end of the last segment. Well, and, and that's something that uh, theoretically a good environmental impact statement or environmental assessment does is it captures that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But there's another, another point. The, the CEQ regulations, the existing regulations make a great deal of what constitutes a significant impact on the environment because the law says you will do environmental impact statements on 
major federal actions significantly affecting the quality of the human environment. Well, mm -hmm. CEQ, when they wrote the regulations, said we can't really figure out what a major federal action would be outside of its impacts. So we think that major and significantly are basically the same thing. If you have a significant impact, you have a you have you're a major project. The administration wants to change that and say no. First, the agency has to decide whether it's a major project. And they do that mm -hmm. on the basis of, I don't know, a crystal ball or something. Nobody's ever <laughs> been able to figure that out. But the guys who are who are trying to rewrite this regulation, who I think have never had anything to do with the actual practice of NEPA, are trying to say, well, just arbitrarily, the agency up front will decide whether a project is major. And if it's not major, then they don't have to do anything under NEPA. And that is a pretty huge loophole that will allow many, many agencies to say, hey, nothing we do is a major action, and therefore we just don't have to worry about this thing. Hmm. And that's that's going to be a serious problem, and a serious yeah. problem for folks who are out there trying to work in the field, because a lot of your projects are going to disappear. Yeah, that's true. It, it's it's tough kind of trying to define those those sorts of terms. And you can't even do it with like a dollar figure and say, you know, oh, this this amount of money means major project because it, you know, even a small project could be major for a local community, you know, sure. something like that. So you need different metrics. Yeah, different, met different metrics indeed, because also talking about the things that are valued, you know, we mentioned the pyramids and everything. Of course, those are, you know, unique, UNESCO, amazing sites, but these other sites that could be, you know, some kind of heritage home or a schoolhouse or, uh, you know, a, a Native American site, they don't necessarily have the same monetary value. But in my doing a little research before this episode, I saw that there was, you know, a new suggested change that groups that want to make public input, if it delays the project, they have to post a bond to cover any potential damages from the delay. But I was of the mindset that in the process of, you know, communicating this to the community, that the input would be solicited from the community or communities would have space or time to input those because this is before projects are going. But this also feeds to another aspect that agencies could actually go ahead with the project before they've actually completed the entire NEPA. So I guess maybe my question is about, you know, what do you think this is going to do to communities that don't have the resources to post a bond to cover the construction delays of something just so that they can actually make community input? Yeah, it's going to screw them. Uh, and that's, <laughs> that's the intent. Uh, the, the administration, I think, sees NEPA as an impediment to putting in pipelines and oil wells and all the other things that they like. And it's, it's just an impediment. It has no value. And who the hell cares about these communities? You know, <laughs> let, them, let them get COVID and die. Uh, it's not sure. – uh, the, the, the regulation, the, the proposed changes to the regulations are very cruel. They're cruel to the environment and they're cruel to any kind of uh, citizenry who's concerned about the environment. Yeah, I mean, it seems like in that space, only developers that have competing interests you know what I'm saying? Like another developer that doesn't want a pipeline because they want to build a neighborhood or they want to build something else. Those are the only two factions that will really be dealing with this. When, I mean, these laws, if you look at the opening paragraphs of the you know 1969 law, it's talking about, you know, humanity and protecting the environment for the benefit of, you know, all people and species and future generations and stuff. And these are exactly the generations that are going to get screwed by this kind of a change. Yeah, I, I agree completely. So one, one specific change, which I relate to because, you know, working, I, I do work across the country, but 
primarily work in California, and we have California's Assembly Bill 52, which requires consultation with tribal entities. And now, instead of uh, it just saying NEPA, just saying state and local agencies, they're including tribal in with other government agencies. So it's now state and local and tribal agencies that need to be coordinated with and consulted. So this very seems very sim- similar to California's AB 52. How do you see this addition affecting the practice of CRM uh, nationwide? Oh, not much. Uh, that particular piece won't. And of course, it doesn't matter it, who they're consulting if they're not consulting anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, all you got to do is is take the project out from under NEPA by saying it's not major or say, oh, well, the only impacts are going to be cumulative and we can ignore them. And then you don't have to consult with anybody. The fact that they've included tribes is nice. It's something that has been proposed many times in the past, and CEQ has dealt with it in the past with guidance. They have their 40 questions, and they have a whole bunch of other guidance about how you do EAs and EISs. And in those contexts, they've said, well, yeah, we didn't think about tribes when we wrote the initial regulations back in the 70s, but you ought to include tribes. Okay, they're putting that in the regulation, and that's it's a no-brainer, but it's, it's welcome. It just that won't make any difference if nothing is being analyzed anyway. So in some cases, it could be almost like a false sense of security, so to speak, like we're here we are, including the tribal entities, so everybody should know that now they have full voice in this process, when in fact, they don't, not to the degree they should. They'll have full voice in a process. Does that sound fair? Well, no, because they'll have full voice only in whatever gets analyzed, and if nothing's going to get analyzed... It's, it's a catch-22. Right. Uh, sure, you can talk to us Indians, but uh, we have, there's nothing for you to talk about. Hmm. It's always interesting to me when you have these kind of changes where they seem like they're just tweaking the language a little bit, which makes me suspect. Because if you're if you have not made any changes or any substantive changes to something like NEPA for so long, and then you're just tweaking language – to me, it's much more than a tweak. So it could be two word change and it means so much more. So there's one change that when it talks to change to the definition of a human environment and before it said people, now that people has been changed to present and future generations of Americans. So that would intentionally exclude non-Americans in the U.S. It could also affect activities abroad and that that sort of thing. So I'm curious from your perspective, because mine is minimal, if you see any problems with that change. Well, yeah, I see problems with it. They have an argument in that present and future generations of Americans is the statutory language, which again gets back to the fact that I think they really we really need a change to the law. But yeah, we we will be not considering the impact impacts on anybody who's not a not an American. It's it's the stupid America first business that uh, the administration mm-hmm. wants to jam down everybody's throat, and it's it's um, again it's cruel. I mean that's that's the one word that I have for this regulation. It is cruel to the environment and to people everywhere, particularly non-American citizens or non-good white American citizens. So, yeah, I think it's a problem. Just commenting on the the America first thing. Uh, my God, so many things are so, so destroyed by that whole entire phrase. And it's amazing how far we're swinging in that direction with this administration and how quickly we are. And it, it makes you wonder about... Well, it makes you wonder about the just everything else in this in this country. You know what I mean? Uh, And the things that could be affected by that, because uh, I mean, he comes on the scene. This administration comes on the scene, starts making these changes. And so many people are behind them. You know, we keep those of us that are on this call um, seem to be of generally uh, a similar 
I guess, political persuasion to broadly say that um, in that we don't necessarily agree with a lot of what the current administration is doing. However, um, and I'm not speaking for everybody in the call, just my my assessment of the um, situation, but however, it's... Uh, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but it's so irritating and frustrating to me to think that, you know, I want to have pride in the country and the place that I live in, but it's so difficult when you realize that, hey, kind of over half the country doesn't really feel the way you do. And it's not in a good way either. It's it's making it kind of a kind of a crazy place to live. And you just wonder about your neighbor and the person standing next to you in the grocery line and the, the person standing next to you when you're pumping your gas. And luckily they're six feet away at this point. Maybe that'll help. But you know, it's just, it's just difficult thinking that all these people are, are, you know, thinking this way. I, I do think that this is just, you know, during the, the comment process, there were so few people that were engaged in that. I mean, it was like pulling teeth to get anybody to comment on it and to, to comment during that period, um, which I think closed, I, I can't remember exact, the exact date, but you know, it's, it's closed now. And you know, there are so many people that have something to say, but at the same time, they're not willing to educate themselves and and to be part of the process. So no matter what these changes are, whether they went with things, you know, in, in an avenue that we agree with or not, uh, people need to really start becoming more engaged and understanding what they're not just fight for a cause, but they have to understand what they're fighting for and they have to do it in an intelligent manner. Otherwise, it's too easy to just dismiss people because they're being ignorant. And I don't mean ignorant in a negative sense, just ignorant. They do not know. And so, you you know, it's up to us, especially those of us that are practitioners, to really understand these laws, not just to implement them, but to do what we can to make sure that the spirit of these laws and the reason that they were created is upheld. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree more. And it is this, this, this is a difficult thing to comment on. The regulation is a difficult thing to comment on because most people don't deal with the NEPA regulations on a day-to-day basis. And most people don't have a deep understanding of what they say. So, and there, there's a lot of mythology about what they say. So it's hard for the average person to just grab hold of this and say anything intelligent. But there were a lot of comments. I don't know what they are, but uh, there were quite a few comments that were received. And I, I hope that uh, that will result in something. I don't expect it to from these birds. I mean, they, they don't give a damn about what the comments are. They know what they want to do, and they're going to do it if they possibly can. But uh, they're not very smart, and it ought to be possible to um, get a reasonable court to recognize that what they've done is not kosher. Going back to the being concerned about what the person at the gas pump, they're a person just like you and they have all the same concerns, but not everyone like, you know, Heather and Tom are saying, not everyone gets the same information. So it's making, you know, what we would consider bad decisions, but they consider good decisions based on a whole different toolkit of information. It's like, that's the, the key. I always think that, you know, people enjoy things like clean water and fresh air and stuff like that, but telling them that, you know, if you're not going to have that, it, or it doesn't matter if you have clean water and fresh air, if you have no job, so we got to burn coal. That's the only way, you know, uh, a lot of people understand that that is not actually, in fact, the only way. And then finally, not half of the people in the United States think that way. I mean, the election results show you that pretty much only like 20% that actually, mm-hmm. you know, are Americans, you know, uh, men, women, children voted for this type of situation. And even among them, they all don't actually, in fact, have agreement. It is still only a minority of people who think this is a good idea. Yeah, I think you're right. I hope. (laughs) I hope too. On that hopeful note, let's take our final break and then we'll come back and wrap this discussion up in segment three and uh, solve solve all of our world's cultural problems in that uh, 18 minutes. Back in a second. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to the final segment of episode 190 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And we are talking with Tom King about NEPA and the proposed changes this year. Tom, I mentioned I, I haven't been, I, I keep saying proposed changes and I haven't been as following up on this as, as much as you and uh, and Heather have been, but where where do we stand right now? Uh, the, are these still proposed changes? Have these changes been made? What is the current status of NEPA and these changes that we're talking about? They are proposed changes. The, the administration okay. has published them for comment. They've received comment. They're required by the Administrative Procedures Act to consider the comments they're not necessarily required to do anything particular in response to the comments. And I anticipate that they will do very, very little. Mm-hmm. But they do have members of Congress particularly telling them that these things are dead on arrival. And so we'll see. I really appreciate Tom, your approach to when you do explain things. I mean, your your political persuasion is is not hidden. And I think that's good too, because to be transparent and out there and people know where you stand and and I have no problem with that. But when it comes to discussing these kinds of changes, I think it's really important that those of us that at least are somewhat involved and, and really trying to at least uh, either use these properly or to fight for what it what we believe is is correct and right i think it's really important that for those that are influencers that we communicate in a way that is as least political as possible and that really just deals with the law and the statutes as they are and to interpret them in the spirit uh, of course which could be part partly interpretation there too, obviously. My my understanding of the spirit of law is different than, than someone else's. But I think it's really important, especially somebody in your place, to do you agree with when we're talking about these to really focus on when we're talking to other people, whether it just be the public or fellow practitioners, that we try our best to really focus on the spirit. Because administrations are going to change and we may not even a, an administration that's more in line with other people's political persuasions may have some of the same changes or may have things that we believe are detrimental what is your your feeling on that because i i notice personally when you're talking and interviews i've heard you do and things i've seen you write you do your you you seem to try to uh walk that narrow line of dealing with the the subject at hand without having an emotional argument about it. Well, I think I'm getting less uh, competent at that as this administration goes on. They are just so far out there that it's very hard to um, uh, maintain balance. But thank you. I appreciate I appreciate those uh, compliments. Yes, I think it's important to, to focus on the facts and not – we should not be slinging slander at each other. We should not be engaging in in a lot of nastiness. We should focus on the actual changes and what those changes will result in. In, in terms of the spirit, I mean, yeah, I think you, you can find the spirit of NEPA in its early, its early sections, its, its preambulatory sections. There's a whole bunch of general policy that was laid out by Congress back in 1969 that's, you know, I don't, I don't think many people would have a great deal of argument with it. And Unfortunately, one of the things that these strict constructionists have done in saying that they're, they're going back to the statute is to ignore everything the statute says about policy. Now, CEQ had never said very much about – they'd never done very much with the sections of the law before Section 102C, which is where the EIS comes from. But these guys are, are saying we're going back to the to the statute, but they're ignoring 
the policy sections of the statute, which is where you find the spirit. And so I think that's something we need to, we need to focus on, we need to emphasize. Okay. Tom, you've mentioned a couple times in this uh, episode that we should, instead of making changes, even if another administration comes in in 2021, uh, we elect somebody else in there, uh, you know, rather than just change it all back, we really should rewrite this whole thing. If you were asked to the table and you were said, hey, listen, uh, what should we do here? We're, we're at a loss. <laughs> what would you, if you were given a blank page and a pen and said, listen, write up a new National Environmental Policy Act, what would what do you think are some of the key features that really should be in there that aren't in there now or features that are in there now but could be changed a little bit to be, I guess, more inclusive or better, for lack of a better word? I actually wrote up a, a proposed amendment to the to the NEPA mm-hmm. and sent it to the there, – there was a House committee that held hearings a couple of years ago, and I proposed – wrote – got it you know, wrote it down on paper and sent it in. And of course it was ignored. <laughs> I think the key, the key change would be to get rid of the stuff about do a, do a statement of environmental impacts and instead focus on the process of identifying environmental impacts and resolving them. And honestly, I would I would look at the Section 106 process as a not a great model, but a sort of conceptual model, in that it, it says go out and consult with people and figure out what the impacts are going to be based not only on science, but on interaction with the affected public. And I think you could mm-hmm. write that kind of provision and the, and the sort of negotiation of an agreement, seeking agreement that you find in Section 106. You could you could lay that into NEPA, and it would make a, a stronger and yet more flexible process. We wouldn't be arguing about well, is this a significant impact? You'd be arguing about how do we resolve these impacts that people, whether they're scientists or or just plain citizens, see as mm-hmm. as important. I'm glad you brought up Section 106 in the National Historic Preservation Act or NHPA because some people on this, some people listening to this, may not have had. Uh, the education to understand really what the difference is here. Can you uh, can you summarize how NHPA and NEPA work together? And 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 I, I would really want to know is is there a way we could write these together rather than having two, or do they need to be separate? Are they covering completely separate things? But could you discuss how they work together and, and uh, affect policy this way? Oh, I think if one were rewriting a bunch of laws, you could certainly. You could basically do away with Section 106. Well, let me back mm-hmm. up. The National Historic Preservation Act has a bunch of different parts. It creates the National Register. It funds right. the SHPOs. It funds the THPOs and so on. And then there's Section 106 that says you've got to take into account the effects on historic properties. Okay, that's very similar to what NEPA says. You've got to do a statement of significant environmental impacts. Unfortunately, the folks who wrote NEPA, which came along three years after the National Historic Preservation Act, didn't talk to the people who had been involved in enacting the National <laughs> Historic Preservation Act. They might have learned something. Though, right. you know, the, the Advisory Council regulations were not in place at that time either. Typically, in the average consulting firm, I think, the 106 shop is folded into the NEPA shop because you're doing environmental assessments, you're doing environmental impact impact statements, and it's in that context that you do Section 106, even though it's done under a totally separate statutory authority. When I was at the Advisory Council many, many moons ago, we tried very hard to affect a better relationship with NEPA, and we put out a lot of guidance and and wrote stuff into the regulations about how 
the two could be merged and blended. None of that's worked very well. But still, typically, when you're doing an EA, when you're doing an environmental impact assess, impact statement, that's when you do archaeological surveys. That's when you do historic building surveys. That's when you do consultation with tribes and with local communities and other, other interested mm-hmm. parties. And that's when you try to reach a memorandum of agreement that is then represented in the NEPA document. So the two, the two can work and I think typically do work uh, very, very well together. The, the, the interesting thing we're going to see if these regulations go into place is that you'll have NEPA applying to a much more narrow range of actions than Section 106 does. And how that's going to get dealt with is uh, anybody's guess. <laughs> Indeed. I have a selfish question, Tom, and it's a little kind of off topic, kind of on topic. I'm just curious <laughs> what it was like in the beginning when you were part of that advisory council. Was it, you know, for those of us now with the perspective we have now or limited just for, you know, currently, it's hard to imagine what that was like in the beginning, creating these procedures when nothing before that really existed. So I guess it's kind of an open question, but I'd love to maybe a day in the life of, or, and I know we don't have a whole lot of time, but do you have something you could share? Well, the NEPA regulations, I had nothing to do with the NEPA regulations. I had very little to do with the advisory council regulations. At the time that they were first put together, I was a practicing archaeologist in California and I was involved in litigation under under the National Historic Preservation Act and under NEPA, uh, working with a tribe in Northern California. And there were no procedures at that time. So we were we were sort of making it up as we went along. I, I don't know. It, it, it's an interesting thing to think about uh, a day in the life <laughs> back in the 1970s <laughs> or even 60s. You know, when I got started in this game, uh, there was no, there was no NEPA, there was no, there was no NHPA. All we had was the Reservoir Salvage Act, under which the National Park Service got a few million bucks uh, every year to do salvage under behind core of engineer reservoirs and all we could do was salvage it was a it was a, a real um, new day when the national historic preservation act came along and then nepa came along three years later i just wanted to know california already have historic preservation acts that were at the county or state level no um in 19 19- 65, I think, we were able to get the first county-level archaeology ordinance passed in Marin County, California. But that essentially just said nobody can bulldoze out an Indian site unless they have given archaeologists uncompensated 30 days to excavate it. At the time, that was that was really something, and the real estate community went crazy over it. But it was it was pretty minimal, and that was in liberal Northern California. <laughs> so, Tom, your new book, Cultural Resource Management: A Collab- Collaborative Primer for Archaeologists. I've been giving this to to staff that I supervise as a gift. I gave it every everyone for Christmas. <laughs> and I'm thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> First of all, I want to say thank you for for writing a book that's so concise and elegantly written and, and gives people, you know, uh, a good overview and uh, ability to, you know, understand these broad subjects, but I'm hoping maybe you could and another selfish question, is this going to be your your last book? I hope not. <laughs> Can we sign a petition that it's not? <laughs> no, I think this is this is my last book. I'm I'm 
old, I'm tired, I don't write as well as I used to. Um, I appreciate your saying that it's a good book. I hope it is a good book. And I should say that none of the royalties come to me. The royalties all go to the Sustainable Preservation Initiative, Hmm. and I hope it will do them a certain amount of good. Thank you for doing that. Well, hey, my pleasure. <laughs> no, I think it I think it's my last book because, you know, I could I could die tomorrow. I'm, I'm pretty well, antique. <laughs> well, okay, what, I, one one more quick question. So, do you mind just sharing maybe a, a minute or two on your pursuits with the Amelia Earhart? <laughs> I have backed out of the Amelia Earhart game after the last quote expedition. We we went out to Nicomororo, where we think Air, Earhart wound up mm-hmm. last year with uh, Robert Ballard and his underwater um, extravaganza and the National Geographic Society and a small team of dogs, forensic canines, and archaeologists who worked on the island. Analysis well, we didn't find we were we were particularly hoping to find human bones at the site where we think Earhart died. We were particularly hoping to find the airplane underwater. Neither thing happened. We did get a lot of soil samples from places where the dogs alerted, which are which were being analyzed uh, to see if DNA could be extracted from them, but. That's all been closed down by COVID, and uh, stay tuned. But I got pretty disgusted with the whole thing uh, and have um, decided, and again, because I I really am no longer able to jump in and out of little rubber boats and slither over slimy coral reefs, I'm a danger to others. So I'm not going to continue doing that. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bring up a sore subject, but I, I has always been something that has really intrigued me as, you know, so many others. So I, I loved to find out that you were so involved with it. So it's super cool. Well, it was fun while it lasted. And yeah. um, I just don't, I can't justify it anymore. Yeah. Understood. <laughs> yeah, I got to... I got to hear a little bit about some of those because um, I think we talked about it before, Tom, but I also interviewed uh, on a different podcast, Chris Williamson, before he came out with that uh, incredibly detailed, long series um, documentary. I think it was called mm-hmm. Finding Earhart. Um, yeah. So it's a very, very interesting story and lots of stuff still still coming out about that, some of the expeditions. So, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's an archaeological report to be written that still needs to be done, uh-huh. but... I don't know if it'll get right. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Well, Tom, thank you for coming on the, on the call today. It's been good to uh, talk about some of these changes. We have our audience for this podcast are CRM professionals. Typically. I mean, there could be others, but if you're listening, thanks. Uh, Although I don't know why you would listen to this podcast if you weren't a CRM professional, but Hey, we'll take it. Um, I I think this is good because (laughs) that's right. That's right. Um, Indeed. So, but I think this is good to, to have stuff like this so we can discuss these because we're, you know, there's a lot of boots on the ground people that are, that are, you know, being dramatically affected by, uh, by these changes and, and things that are going on at the, uh, at the political levels of things. So it's good to discuss them and I'm, and I'm glad you were able to, to come on and do this. So thanks again. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure and good, good talking to you too, Bill. And Heather. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, you too, Tom. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. It's it's a dream come true for me. So one Aww. one more uh, <laughs> check off my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet 
facebook.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.